This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor Osea and their best-selling Undaria Algae Body Oil. Get healthy, glowing skin for summer with clean, vegan skincare from Osea. Get 10% off your first order site-wide with code GLOW at OseaMalibu.com. This is Fresh Air. I'm Terry Gross. The iconic song, New York, New York, was written by John Kander and Fred Ebb for Martin Scorsese's 1977 movie musical, New York, New York, which starred Robert De Niro and Liza Minnelli. A new Broadway musical called New York, New York, inspired by the film, opens next week on Broadway. It includes Kander and Ebb songs from the movie, as well as several of their little-known songs, and a few new ones composed by Kander with lyrics by Lin-Manuel Miranda. Today we're going to feature our interviews with Kander and his songwriting partner Fred Ebb, who died in 2004. Kander and Ebb's best-known Broadway shows are Cabaret and Chicago. Songs from those shows are now being lovingly parodied in the series Schmicago, which also parodies other Broadway shows from the 60s and 70s. It's the new follow-up season to the Apple TV Plus series Schmigadoon, which took on classic musicals of the 40s and 50s, including Brigadoon. John Kander is 96 now and still composing. Let's start with Frank Sinatra's recording of New York, New York. Start spreading the news I'm leaving today I want to be a part of it New York, New York These vagabond shoes Are longing to stray Right through the very heart of it New York, New York I want to wake up In a city that doesn't sleep And find I'm king of the hill Top of the heap These little town blues Are melting away I talked about that song with John Kander when we spoke in 2015 after the release of a double CD called John Kander, Hidden Treasures. It includes this demo version of the first draft of New York, New York, with composer Kander at the piano and lyricist Fred Ebb singing. It was recorded in I do like a do on Park Avenue Or to view a canoe at the Central Park Zoo Or stare at the glare of the Broadway lights Or go to Madison Square to catch the fights Well, I can all John Kander, welcome to Fresh Air. It's such a treat to have you back on the show. I love this new collection. I'm so glad that it was produced. It's so much fun to hear that first draft of New York, New York, and compare it to the anthem that you finally wrote. Tell the story of why this version was rejected. Well, to start with, I'm surprised that I ever let anybody hear that first version. Why? Uh, uh, It's... uh, it's, I guess because it's terrible. Uh, that's, part, that's part of the reason. Uh, the story of how the other one got written is Fred and I were writing songs for a film called New York, New York. Martin Scorsese was directing it and starred Liza Minnelli and Robert De Niro. Uh, we wrote five or six songs and went down to Marty's office to play them. And 
Liza and Marty were there. And then in the background, I don't know if we got introduced or not, was Robert De Niro uh, sitting on a couch. I'm not sure I even knew that at the time. Anyway, we played the songs for them, and everything was all set and until suddenly we saw this arm waving from the couch, and Marty went over and said, excuse me, De Niro wants to speak to me. And then we watched what was a very animated conversation. We couldn't hear anything. And Scorsese came back and in a very embarrassed way said that De Niro had felt that the title song, which was very much attached to him in the film, was just too lightweight compared to the song that was attached to Liza, which was The World Goes Round. And would we consider taking another crack at it. And, of course, we left and thought, some actor is going to tell us how to write a song. And uh, we could not have been more internally pompous, I think. Anyway, when we went back to Fred's apartment, and I think because the juices of rage were coursing through our bodies, we wrote a, another song very fast, probably 45 minutes, called New York, New York. And took it back, and that was the song that was used in the movie and became the song which is now pretty well known. That's an excerpt of my 2015 interview with John Kander. The first time I interviewed him was 40 years ago, in 1983, along with his songwriting partner, Fred Ebb, who died in 2004. I asked them about New York, New York. One of the really curious things about the film New York, New York, for which you, you wrote the score and the title song, um, is that... When the movie came out, well, I heard Liza Minnelli singing it on the radio a couple of times. But it wasn't until a couple of years later when Frank Sinatra recorded his version of it that it really became like a national anthem. You really do never know. And it was three years after the film. It was, uh, I mean, if we thought of it, which we hadn't, we would have thought that the song was a dead issue. And then suddenly, you know, it's this wonderful break you get when somebody sings it who, you know, people like very much. And I don't know, for instance, what made that version work and Liza's not so popular. It's a, I wouldn't know that either. I also don't know why Frank Sinatra decided to sing it. I think we've all heard at least 200 different versions of New York, New York. I've, I've heard it in elevators. I've heard street musicians p- performing it in Manhattan. Uh, lots of you know, performers in, included as part of, part of their That's performance. That's terrific. What, I mean, it makes me very happy. What's the worst version of it you've ever heard? On the Miss America page. I knew it. I knew you were going to say that. <laughs> Some poor girl is going to be really miserable now. Well, I don't mean to offend you, <laughs> Miss Alabama or whoever you were, but th- that was really rank. How do you feel when you're sitting in um, an elevator or in a restaurant and, and it comes on the, the music? I think I'm going to die. I really think literally, if you're in, a, in an airplane or, or in an elevator or something like that and your own music comes on, and particularly if you're alone, you think, that's it, curtains. Sometimes you don't even connect it. You know, you listen to quite a lot of the song before you say, so, oh, I wrote that. You know, you don't connect yourself. If, if you ever elbowed someone next to you and say, oh, by the way, I wrote that song. No, no, no. I have. No. You I, have? Yeah, there was a cab driver once. I t- couldn't control it. Then I felt embarrassed. But I heard it on the radio in a cab. And in fact, they played a few of our songs, one after the other. It sounded like they were doing a, uh, a piece about us. And I got real excited. And I said to him, you know, I wrote that song. Oh, and he said? Well, he's a typical New York cab ride, like, sure you did, you know. <laughs> but I was real excited then. It was the only time I've ever done that. Well, let's listen to my hair from the soundtrack of the film Cabaret. Maybe you could tell us how this song came came into shape. Oh, that was not from the musical. That's this is from only the from the movie. From the movie, yeah. Yeah. This was uh, a song that Bob Fosse asked us to write to replace what? To Don't do- Tell Mama. Yeah. I'm trying to remember why. I think he wanted a sexier opening number. The character of Sally was somewhat... Um, well, she was more important in the film than she ever had been in the play. In the play, in fact, she has two and a half songs. In the film, she became more 
important, and he wanted the opening number to be more vibrant. And Don't Tell Mama is sort of a sweet Diddy-like song. And, um, it also had a chorus in it, and maybe I think he wanted something. Maybe. He wanted something for Liza to sing by herself, although there's a chorus in mine here, too. I think he wanted it more thumping and arresting and the dynamic. Don't Tell Mom is a rather soft little 30s-like song. And when you know you're writing for Liza Minnelli, is there a certain range you have in mind? Yeah, I think it's easier. Whenever you know who you're writing for, uh, you get a sound in your head, and somehow instinctively you begin to... You begin to tailor it for that person. I remember with mine hair, as a matter of fact, I was so scared when we were playing it. We also had written conservatively eight songs uh, before that one, before Bobby approved of, Fosse approved of, uh, of mine hair. He knew exactly what he was looking for, and we weren't coming up with it. Did, did you finally, resent it when he turned the others down? Oh, no, that's part of... No, we write fast, and we throw away fast. But it's also part of, it. it's <laughs> part, of uh, the, part of what you do, you know. But I remember that. I remember when we played it. I was so <laughs> anxious for. There are a lot of glissandos in it. I was. We were playing in Cy Fewer's office, and I remember at the end of playing Mine Hair for him the first time, I looked down. There was blood <laughs> on the piano keys, literally from going swish with my fingers. But they took the song. Yeah, he said that'll do nicely, and I. Oh, there was great sigh of relief <laughs> that we wouldn't have to go home and try still another one. Well, let's hear. This is Joel Gray and Liza Minnelli. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you that international sensation, Fräulein Sally Bowles. You have to understand the way I am, mine hair. A tiger is a tiger, not a lamb, mine hair. You'll never turn the vinegar to jam, mine hair. So I do what I do. When I'm through, then I'm through. And I'm through. Toodaloo. Bye, bye, my lieber hair. Farewell, my lieber hair. It was a fine affair, but now it's over. And though I used to care, I need the open air. You're better off without me, mine hair. Don't dab your eye, mine hair, or wonder why, mine hair. I've always said that I was a rover. You mustn't knit your brow, you should have known by now. You've every cause to doubt me, mine hair. From Cabaret, that was Mine Hair, sung by Liza Minnelli. And my guests are John Kander and Fred Ebb, who wrote the score for Cabaret and for many other uh, musicals on Broadway. Musicals, uh, the, the scores that you write for a musical get a, a new life when the musical closes, and then you see which songs can continue to live and what kind of context they're, they're sung in, what kind of life they've taken on on their own, the songs that are still oh, well, sung. Well, that's, you know, that's always very gratifying. I think there's no real way of knowing while you're writing them. I think it's a mistake to sit down and think of a song you're writing for musical in terms of the life it might have away from the musical. Yeah, we can never guess that. But only because you really, truly never know. Cabaret, for example, was not written with an eye to how many people could possibly sing it outside the show. Right. And when that does happen, it's very gratifying and very nice, but always uh, slightly surprising. And the songs you're surest of are the ones you might be taking out after the first preview. Does it ever bother you when someone says, which one of you writes the lyrics? Which are you? No. Because that happens mm. in teams. The one question that's beginning to bother me is which comes first, the music or the lyrics, <laughs> since everybody asks that. You very nicely did not, and so I thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I thank you very much for talking with us. I really enjoyed well, it. Well, thank you for I having me. Love your music and, and good luck with Sorbonne. Thanks, Thanks for, for being thank here. Thank you. My interview with composer John Kander and the late lyricist Fred Ebb was recorded in 1983. Let's return to the 2015 interview I recorded with Kander after the release of a collection of songs by Kander and Ebb, including songs that never made it into musicals. That collection, called John Kander Hidden Treasures, 
features this demo recording of one of Cantor and Ebb's most famous songs, with Cantor at the piano and Ebb singing, recorded in 1965. What good is sitting alone in a room? Come hear the music play. Life is a cabaret, old chum. Come to the cabaret. Put down your knitting, your book, and your broom. Time for a holiday Life is a cabaret, old chum Come to the cabaret Come taste the wine Come hear the band Come blow a horn Start celebrating Right this way your table's waiting Permitting some prophet of doom To wipe every smile away Life is a cabaret, old chum Come to the cabaret I used to have a girlfriend known as Elsie so that was a 1965 demo recording with the composers John Kander at the piano, lyricist Fred Ebb singing. I saw the revival of the revival <laughs> uh, right. with, with Alan Cumming. He was right. wonderful. So was Linda Eamond in the title. In, in, oh, you bet So she was Linda Eamond oh. in the role that was originated by Lottie Lenya in Cabaret as, as Fraulein Schneider. And Lottie Lenya was such a great singer, and she was also, of course, the widow of Kurt Weill. And um, some of the songs sound to me very influenced by Kurt Weill, who I would imagine you you listen to a lot while writing the songs, since he's the composer we most associate with that period. He's the songwriter we most associate with that period. He's a German songwriter who fled the Nazis. The interesting thing is that I listened to everybody but Kurt Weill because I knew that was a dangerous area to be uh, walking into. I listened to lots and lots and lots of German jazz and German vaudeville music of the 20s, but I stayed away zealously from listening to Weill at all. Uh, What I think happened is that the kind of court vile musical pieces that we hear in our heads were influenced by the same thing that I was sort of digging into. His early music and more serious music is in many ways in a totally different style and quite wonderful and slightly academic. When he comes to writing his musicals or operas, if you will, He's reflecting the sounds of those vaudeville houses and German jazz and that sort of sleazy world that uh, I was trying to reflect also. But the actual influence of Weill's music itself was non-existent. That's composer John Kander, recorded in 2015. Songs from the Kander and Ebb musicals Cabaret and Chicago are among the musicals parodied in the Apple TV Plus series Schmicago, which is the title of the second season of Schmigadoon. We'll hear more from Kander after a break. Here's a song from Schmicago inspired by the Kander and Ebb song Mine Hair from Cabaret. I'm Terry Gross, and this is Fresh Air. Ladies and germs, I give you the beautiful, the charming, the international sensation, Jenny Banks! Hey! Back when I was summering in Brussels... 
I fell in love with Martin and his muscles. My heart got pumping every time he flexed. It's fair to say that I was overcome by what came next. Turns out he wasn't all that strong in bed. And that is when I turned to him and said, We've gone kaput. Now we're kaput. Once our desire burned like a fire, but now there's nothing left but soot. We had a laugh or two, but now the laughter is through. My dear, I fear that we're kaput. Once I took a lover up in Munich Who made my prior bow look like a eunuch Soon we were This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, A People's History from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, is now streaming on Hulu. This is my voice can tell you a lot about me, and I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Anne-Marie Baldonado from Fresh Air with a plug for our latest bonus episode. It's one you'll enjoy if you heard my interview last week with Josh Groban about his role in the current Broadway revival of Sweeney Todd. It's a beast to sing. There's not any moment in this show to coast. That's because composer Stephen Sondheim made every word and musical phrase count as you'll hear him explain to Terry in a 2010 interview. Attend the tale of Sweeney Todd. Well, first of all, attend is an old-fashioned word, so right away you know you're not in the 20th century. Shave the faces of gentlemen who never thereafter were heard of again. The happy happenstance of the T sounds, attend the tale of Sweeney Todd, gives it an old ballad feeling. And tale tells you right away this is not going to be a realistic story. He kept a shop in London town. Hear more from Sondheim and how he thought about songwriting in interviews from our archive featured in our recent bonus episode, available now for Fresh Air Plus supporters. If that's not you, it could be. Learn more at plus.npr.org. Today we're paying tribute to songwriters John Kander and the late Fred Ebb, the new Broadway musical New York, New York, inspired by Martin Scorsese's 1977 film of the same name, opens next week. The show includes Kander and Ebb songs from the movie, other lesser-known Kander and Ebb songs, and new songs written by Kander with lyrics by Lin-Manuel Miranda. Kander and Ebb songs from their musicals Cabaret and Chicago are among the Broadway songs parodied in Chicago, which is the title of the new second season of the Apple TV series Schmigadoon. Kander celebrated his 96th birthday last month. When I spoke with Kander in 1991, he told me how he met his songwriting partner, Fred Ebb. Now, you met your uh, partner, um, Almost on a blind date, so to speak. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like it, yeah. Yeah, because you, you were you were basically set up by the music publisher Tommy Valando, who had been publishing both of you independently. And what he suggested that you you get together. Do I have the story he, right? He literally said, "I think you two guys should meet each other. I think you'd like each other." And uh, so, since we always followed his advice <clears throat> separately at the time, we did meet each other. We did like each other, and we started writing almost immediately. I don't know. We were just pregnant with song all the time, it seemed to me. And from then on, we've been one of those marriages in which you're pretty faithful to each other. Uh, Fred has done some material with someone else, and I do 
an occasional movie score, as I am at the moment. But when it comes down to the hardcore of what we've written, we write together. What is your process of working together? Do you work together in the same room at the same time? Right. We Fred lives about four blocks from my house, and he likes to stay home to work. I like to go out to work. And at 10 o'clock or so in the morning, I'll go over to his house, and we will sit around the kitchen table and have some coffee and gossip a little and then go to work. And we, if we're working on a moment in a, in a show, for instance, we'll, we'll be talking about the characters and the situation that we're about to musicalize. And Fred may have an idea or a phrase, and from that phrase maybe we'll develop a rhythm. It's very hard to describe it after that except to say that we... We improvise together uh, at the same time in the same room. It's a, it's a kind of unique way of working for us. Most people do not work that way. Either somebody hands somebody a melody or, and, or somebody hands somebody a, a lyric. We, that never happens to us or almost never. And for the 26 or so years that we've been together, that's, that's always been the way we worked. And it's, it's always fun. It, I, I don't know how to say that without sounding goony, but it's true. Whatever else is going on in our lives, uh, sitting together in a room and writing a song is always a good time, even when it's even when our work is bad. Let me pick up on what you just said, even <clears throat> if the work is bad. Now, when do you decide that you don't like a song if you're going to tear it up? Do you know that right away? Or is it like three days later that you realize, God, that was a bad song? Sometimes you know it right away. Usually it takes about 24 hours. And then I'll come back the next day, we'll look at it, and we'll both stick our fingers down our throats and tear it up and <laughs> go to work again. But it's, that's never a, t- a terrible moment. I think it's very important, at least it, ha- it always has been important for us, to stay very loose, which allows you to write badly as, as well as to write well. But we write a lot, and we tear up a lot. That's an excerpt of my 1991 interview with John Kander. Let's return to our interview from 2015, 11 years after his songwriting partner, Fred Ebb, died. They had worked together for 42 years. Fred Ebb died in 2004 of a heart attack. How did you carry on musically after having collaborated with him for so many years? It's a hard... hard thing to answer. We had been to, uh, together for so long that uh, it seemed sometimes things like somebody's death seems unlikely because for years and years and years that person has been alive and part of your life. One of the main things I think that, that helped me out was that we had three shows which were incomplete. One was Scottsboro, one was The Visit, and uh, one was Curtains. And so for the next few years, finishing those shows felt like working with Fred. So that it wasn't that kind of sudden break-off of, a, of, a, of an artistic relationship. The songs that had to be written or the scores that had to be completed, I did the lyrics for them to the best of my ability and trying to uh, sort of conjure Fred when I was working. And I think they came out all right. And in, so in, in that way, it wasn't until we finished the visit that uh, the, it was the end of our collaboration. And the three shows that you mentioned, the visit... Scottsboro Boys and Curtains all made it to Broadway. Yes, they did. And I and I like them. So I want to hear I want to play another demo that you wrote. Um, and this is the first song that broke through that you wrote with lyricist Fred Ebb called My Coloring Book. What was the occasion for writing this song? This was very early in our collaboration and Fred had an idea for writing a comic song about a coloring book. And my memory of it, uh, 
was that I think when he suggested it, for some reason I had some sort of mild annoyance. And I think I said to him, why does everything have to be funny? And we started talking about how you could take a song about a coloring book and make it real, poignant, somehow or other truthfully emotional. And so we went in that direction. I have to preface this by saying, Freddie and I wrote a lot. We were pregnant all the time. So the idea of writing a song, (laughs) it's really true. We just wrote songs and we liked to write songs. So the idea of taking that idea and going in another direction was not a, a moment of friction between us. It was, okay, let's try that. And we ended up writing a song which I I like very much to this day because it's so simple. I like it a lot too. And I remember when it was a hit by Sandy Stewart in, was it the 50s or the 60s? Oh, well, Freddie I met in 1962. So it was, it was, this was in the 1960s that was a hit. Yeah. This is a version that you recorded in 1973. I think th- this was in performance at the 92nd Street Y? Yes. Okay. So this is, this is John... I think so, anyway. <laughs> I think that's right. So this is John Kander at the piano playing and singing a song he wrote with Fred Ebb called My Coloring Book that had been a hit for Sandy Stewart and has been recorded by many other people. If you admire coloring books, lots of people do. I've a new one for you. A most unusual coloring book, the kind you never see. Crayons ready, very well. Begin to color me. are the eyes that watched him as he walked away color them gray this is the heart that thought he would always be true color it That's my guest composer, John Kander, performing a song that he wrote with Fred Ebb, My Coloring Book. Um, How did that song change your life? Because it was a big hit. I think internally it sort of validated us. I don't don't know if that's true or not. And looking back on it, I think so. Uh, Suddenly there was a song out there that lots and lots of people were singing. And it sort of puts you in a or at least it did for me, a slightly different place in your head. It's good and bad. Uh, What's the bad part? I think it scares you. It's a little scary. If you're writing, as I do, really kind of for the pleasure of writing, it uh, suddenly puts you in a kind of commercial place that you hadn't really thought of or... uh, I don't know how to express it quite. I remember I was in an elevator, a a tall building on a high floor, and I got into the elevator, and I was the only person in the elevator. And the doors closed, and Muzak, remember Muzak? Yeah. And the doors closed on the 535th floor of of this building, and a gooey string version of my coloring book started and nobody else was on the elevator and we were going down fast and I thought, I am going to die. (laughs) (laughs) We're listening to my 2015 interview with composer John Kander. We'll hear more of that interview after a break. This is Fresh Air. This message comes from Apple Card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase. That's 3% on products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. This message comes from NPR sponsor McCormick & Company, committed to enhancing people's health their communities, and the planet. McCormick. Healthy. Sustainable. Delicious. 
For more, visit mccormickcorporation.com slash future of flavor. What does it mean to be Black in America? In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as varied, nuanced, and dynamic as the Black experience, you'll hear it means everything. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Let's get back to my interview with composer John Kander, recorded in 2015 after the release of a collection of songs called John Kander Hidden Treasures. It includes some of Kander and Ebb's most famous songs and songs that never made it to the stage. One of my favorite recordings on this collection is sung by Linda Emond, who is the performer who I heard in the role that Lottie Lenya originated in Cabaret. I saw Linda Emond in the revival of it. And on this new collection of your songs, she sings a song that you and Fred Ebb wrote for the musical adaptation of the Thornton Wilder play, The Skin of Our Teeth. And the 1999 production never made it to Broadway. You were revamping the production when Fred Ebb died in 2004. The song is called He Always Comes Home to Me. And I think this is like a married woman singing to her maid. And the married woman knows that her maid has probably had an affair with her husband. Do I have that right? I've never seen the yes. show. So what happened to the song? Uh, it's, it's, it's a beautiful song. Actually, let me play the song, and then um, we'll find out what happened to it. It, 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 it troubles me when a song this good <laughs> hasn't, had, uh, hasn't had the life it deserves. So here's Linda Eman singing a song by John Kander and Fred Ebb. There were others, quite a few, Some were strangers, some I knew But he always comes home to me Late for dinner, quite a lot Do I argue? I do not For I wake in the morning and see He's lying there close to me at home. I know you think I'm foolish. I ought to be more strong. Combat him, defy him, but I say you're wrong. I've children, a marriage, I do it all again. It's just an inconvenience He puts me through Now and then So I'm staying That's Linda Eman singing a song by John Kander and Fred Ebb. That's included in the new collection, John Kander, Hidden Treasures, 1950 to 2015. So you mentioned that the show that that song was written for, The Skin of Our Teeth, that you lost the rights to it, that the Thornton Wilder estate withdrew the rights. How frustrating is it for you when a song as beautiful as that doesn't make it to Broadway and doesn't have a life? I I don't know exactly how to answer that. I I really don't want to sound phony on this. Most of the fun of writing is the fun of writing and rehearsing and hearing people sing it and working with that. What happens later, that includes going through to a complete Broadway production or whatever, is kind of secondary. Uh, I don't think I'm I don't think I'm lying here. Uh, it's great when it happens, but the real fun is writing it and or having Linda sing it. I think it would probably upset Fred more than me. I'm sad about it and uh, a little bitter, but not overwhelmed because you just keep on writing. John Kender, it's been wonderful to talk with you. Thank you so much. Thank you. That was John Kander from our 2015 interview, the new Broadway musical, New York, New York, inspired by the 1977 film of the same name, opens on Broadway next week. The show includes songs by Kander and Ebb from the movie and other Kander and Ebb songs. We'll end our tribute to Kander and Ebb with a song featuring one of the stars of the new show, Anna Uzele, 
singing one of the songs that was performed in the film by Liza Minnelli. Sometimes you're happy, sometimes you're sad, but the world goes round. Sometimes you lose every nickel you had, but the world goes round. Sometimes your dreams get broken in pieces, but that doesn't alter a thing Take it from me There's still gonna be A summer, a winter A fall and a spring And sometimes a friend Starts treating you bad But the world goes round And sometimes your heart With a deafening sound Somebody loses and somebody wins And one day it kicks then it kicks in the shins But the planet spins and the world After we take a short break, David Bianculli will review Dead Ringers, the new Amazon Prime video series based on the 1988 David Cronenberg film of the same name. This is Fresh Air. Support for NPR and the following message come from PBS. PBS invites you on a trip to the future. A Brief History of the Future is a groundbreaking series about people's futures and how they can be reimagined. A Brief History of the Future. Stream now on PBS and the PBS app. This message comes from NPR sponsor Mint Mobile. From the gas pump to the grocery store, inflation is everywhere. So Mint Mobile is offering premium wireless starting at just $15 a month. To get your new phone plan for just $15, go to mintmobile.com switch. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore. Jump into a new perspective on performance apparel. Viore makes products that stand the test of time and hope to inspire others to live vibrant, healthy lives. Empowering your best life in clothing that can be worn for just about any activity from running to yoga. Visit viore.com NPR to receive 20% off your first purchase and enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75. Discover the versatility of Viore clothing. This Friday, Prime Video presents all six episodes of a new dramatic reworking of Dead Ringers, the 1988 David Cronenberg film. That movie starred Jeremy Irons in two roles as twin gynecologists with an intense emotional connection to one another. The TV series pulls a gender reversal, casting Rachel Weisz in the same dual roles. Our TV critic David Bianculli says, This approach explores the female perspective in many more ways than just the casting, and ends up being both bold and breathtaking as a result. Here's his review. David Cronenberg's movie Dead Ringers, like the book on which it was based, was all about birth, death, love, and power, but mostly from the male point of view. Jeremy Irons played twin gynecologists, an impulsive and sometimes predatory doctor named Elliot and a more reserved doctor named Beverly. Elliot enjoyed using his position of authority to seduce some of his infertility patients and even some of Beverly's by pretending to be his twin brother. This new six-episode prime video adaptation of Dead Ringers preserves all of that. But showrunner Alice Birch, who created this TV version, changes it too by giving its female characters all the power. Birch's credits include Normal People, Lady Macbeth, and Season 2 of Succession. And here, she's assembled a writer's room populated entirely by women. The result is like a polar opposite of A Handmaid's Tale. Women are in positions of power, both as doctors and as wealthy medical donors, and aggressively pursue both their ambitions and their passions. For this new Dead Ringers, the Mantle Twins, Beverly and Elliot, are played by Rachel Weiss 
who was so brilliant opposite Olivia Colman in the period movie The Favorite. She's brilliant here, too, opposite herself. Her Beverly wears her hair in a tight bun, while Elliot wears her hair down and flowing. But viewers can also tell the twins apart by everything from posture to vocal tone. It's a masterful acting achievement, up there with such multiple role showcases as Tatiana Maslany in Orphan Black and Tony Collette in the United States of Tara. As Elliot, she's in her office counseling a married couple when the pregnant wife excuses herself to use the bathroom. The amoral Elliot takes the opportunity to focus on the husband and play with him like a toy, flattering him, seducing him, then humiliating him, all in the space of one quick bathroom break. Chad Doric plays the husband, Max. How are you doing, Max? How are you feeling about impending fatherhood? Sure. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's... <clears throat> it's a lot. Yeah. You're right. People forget to ask the daddies. It's important for you to express how you're feeling. Yeah, I just... Is there anything you'd like to show me? Anything at all you think I'd like to see? Because I can think of one thing that I would love to see, and I say you've got about 30 seconds to show me. Can you do that for me? Is this? Oh, my God, is this? Yes. This is what you want very much. Yes. Thank you so much, Max. It was actually a huge disappointment. (laughs) (laughs) Twin sister Beverly is a lot more reserved. So much so that when she has the chance to examine Genevieve, an imposingly attractive actress played by Brittany Oldford, she runs to Elliot for help. Elliot understands that her sister has a crush on the actress, so Elliot offers to take Beverly's place in the exam room and not only deliver to Genevieve the bad news about her latest medical results, but, as Beverly, to begin to flirt with her. Can I go? This is not not the final conversation. There is a lot that we can do. No. I mean, thank you, but no. I think I'd like to take a second before moving on to the what do we do now bit. Okay. Shall we make a follow-up? Sure. Is that bar any good, the one on the corner? Ah, uh, no. Awful. Awful is good. Awful is perfect. You really do have options. There's a lot that we can do. Yeah, I just, I don't want to talk about that right now. I want to get wrecked and feel sad about how deformed and infertile I am. You're not infertile. Just deformed. Not what I said. Sure. No. Right, great. Thanks. Well... Thank you, Dr. Mantle. Sure. Maybe I'll come find you in a bit. Help you get wrecked. That would be wildly inappropriate. Yep. This relationship turns into a very twisted love triangle. And at the same time, there's a more professional seduction going on. The twins are courted by a pair of super-wealthy investors, a big pharma billionaire and her trophy wife, who are interested in funding the twins' research and birthing facilities. Their discussions allow dead ringers to dive deeply and very heatedly into such issues as abortion, medical experimentation, and the very definition of human life. One twin sister wants to push the envelope scientifically and sometimes questionably. The other wants to make the delivery of babies as natural and comfortable a procedure as possible. The twins begin to clash, professionally, personally, romantically, and their reality begins to blur. Directors Sean Durkin and others make the visuals as intense as the psychological rivalry, lots of mirrors and blood, and more and more surprises the longer the drama builds. Michael McKeon from Better Call Saul has a small but sinister role, but doesn't show up until episode 5. And Brittany Bradford, in a single scene as a ghostly apparition, shows up even later. And like so much of this new Dead Ringers, will haunt you in ways you won't soon forget. 
David Bianculi is a professor of television studies at Rowan University. He reviewed the new series, Dead Ringers. All six episodes will stream on Prime Video this Friday. Tomorrow on Fresh Air, we'll talk about the AR-15, the semi-automatic rifle that's been used in many of the mass shootings over the past decade. The original automatic rifle version, the M16, was designed for war and used in combat in Vietnam. A Washington Post series investigates the marketing strategies that transformed it into a mass market weapon and a symbol of gun culture. My guest will be one of the series reporters, Todd Frankel. I hope you'll join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our technical director and engineer is Audrey Bentham. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Heidi Simon, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Bodonato, Thea Chaloner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.V. Nesper. Roberto Shorrock directs the show. I'm Terry Gross. Support for NPR and the following message come from Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs. Their flowering shrubs and evergreens are trialed and tested by expert horticulturists for 8 to 10 years to ensure a beautiful, high-performance display in your landscape or garden. And because the team at Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs is passionate about gardening, they've put together resources to help you get started with garden projects big and small. For example, did you know that hydrangea flower buds form on branches the year before they bloom? With guides like Hydrangeas Demystified, you can learn from the experts and get your questions answered on hydrangea pruning, watering, reblooming, and more. Proven Winners Color Choice Shrubs are available in the distinctive white containers at garden centers nationwide, including over 50 varieties of hydrangeas. Learn more at provenwinnerscolorchoice.com/npr. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com slash NPR. Support for NPR and the following message come from Jarl and Pamela Moan, thanking the people who make public radio great every day and also those who listen.